Welcome to the Neurodiversity and Improv podcast from Flat Improv. I'm Jen DeHaan and I do improv stuff. I like thinking about improv things a lot. These podcasts aren't for telling anyone what to do. I'm just giving explanations and this is to help encourage classes, teams, everyone to be a little bit more inclusive and to help whoever needs this to just get better and more comfortable at doing improv. And honestly, a lot of us think this way. So it's good to know that you're not alone. These episodes are to help with confidence, with feeling more comfortable, maybe making things a little bit easier. Don't force yourself to do something you can't or don't want to do. Improv shouldn't be about that. These episodes, of course, are not for diagnosis either. So don't use these episodes to diagnose yourself or anyone else. Basically, we're just here to be improv nerds, nerding it out about improv. So let's get started. Let's talk about improv, or I guess I'm just talking at you about improv. And after the plug section again, I'll just have a section that's for the weirds out there. So stick around if that's you and uh, you can just turn turn me off if you want, if you don't want any of this in your ears. We're talking about weird and unusual in this episode. Let's get started. So I don't know if this episode will be controversial. This is just my experience, though, with unusual things in improv scenes. And I don't think any of these things are necessarily right or wrong, no matter what you think. This is just how I go about doing a thing currently, because as we know, all of this stuff can change and maybe even go back and forth depending on who you're doing scenes with or what day it is. We're going to talk about finding the unusual thing in a scene today. It's part of the game of the scene style of improv, a really big part of it, actually. You find an unusual thing in the scene, you notice it, you make a game out of it and go from there. However you're going to go, you're going to heighten it, blow it out, explore, success, win, profit, whatever. I have to say, though, that this, along with the voice of reason thing, if you're not sure what that is, go back to episode nine for more about voice of reason. These are those things that took me a little bit to figure out. They were particularly challenging, I believe, based on my neurodivergent neurotype. For example, teachers would mention what was unusual in a scene, what was the very first thing that we might not have picked up on. And sometimes for me, it was things that seemed very normal and I don't think I would have ever picked up on it. But this is a lot about communication and how we think. Like I was watching this video today made by another autistic person, and it was about his communication differences between him and his neurotypical wife. And it reminds me of this a bit. He was detailing how his wife would ask him a question and he would respond with a very honest, automatic response to that question, which was absolutely not what his wife was asking. And he mentioned as it was coming out of his mouth, he'd suddenly realize this is not what she probably wanted to hear. This is probably not what she was asking about. But his response to the question was his first natural response. It was sensical to him. It made sense. It would have been expected to him. But to his neurotypical wife, it was unexpected or unusual. Sometimes these things can be funny to neurotypical people. Sometimes we can even laugh at ourselves. And that's how I kind of am sometimes. 
sometimes, sometimes with the unusual thing in a scene. Like I might not see it instantly, but I might see it just a second after and it will click in as words are already falling out of my mouth. So what's unusual to other people is sometimes not unusual to us. And this is just our wiring. This is part of our communication. We might realize, ah, they wanted this. They expected this. It's like a translation process, sort of a dual translation that might happen in our minds. Now I bet neurodivergent or not, you will quite possibly relate in the general difficulty in spotting the unusual, hearing it, or even just communicating with your scene partners. Having enough processing power though, to think about all the improv stuff and this as well can be very difficult, especially when everyone is starting out. So I hear this, it's hard for all of us, no matter what our neurological wiring is. I do think, though, it is potentially harder or takes increased effort for some or many people who, like me, are a neurodivergent neurotype. We think differently. We have an atypical perspective by definition. So whether or not some things are unusual, that will be affected by unique perspectives, the ones that we all have. And we're doing some extra translation in some cases to compensate for some of these communication differences, because by definition, neurotypical is just a statistically higher number of people that we're being doing scenes with. So that becomes the default, but it doesn't mean that it has to become our default in the scene. Neurotypical and neurodivergent people often speak a different language, and it is due to these wiring differences, as we see in the earlier example about the husband and the wife. We have an extra layer on top of all the other communication challenges humans in general have as being unique human beings, and that is great. But some things get lost in translation, even when we're speaking the same language. As we know, this can happen between regions and cultures and backgrounds. And this neurodivergent, neurotypical communication is one other way. And because we think weird things are normal all the time and vice versa for our neurotypical friends, this is key communication breakdown territory between scene partners, especially early on when we're learning everything else on top of it. Many things in a scene we will just pick up on as unusual quite easily. This isn't a universal case. Some things so we'll have to take maybe a beat to realize, ah, that's what the neurotypical people are finding weird. Okay. And some things might still probably mystify us. So in this next section, I'm going to talk about what is finding the unusual and why do we do it? So the unusual thing, what is it? It's often described as simply that thing that just perks your interest. Something that would make you turn your head and go home. Huh? It doesn't really have to be big. It is often better if it's something that isn't all that weird. It's just off. Examples of an unusual thing in a scene. I mean, it might be something like, wow, that's a lot of crayons, Cheryl, or... I use a mini disc player in 2024. It's the best because of reasons. Or that you listened to Calamosa the puppet 1900 times over the past three weeks, which probably sounded very specific and also might be a callback to a different show. 
Quite often, the unusual is somewhat subtle and often needs to be framed. It might be big and weird and bold, like the Calamosa thing, or it might be subtle, a little bit more subtle, like the crayons, or someone else might need to make sure everyone in the scenes knows. For example, it's the crayon thing, and that's you framing the unusual thing, like calling it out. We either do it where the person that is adding the unusual thing to the scene. Usually it just comes out. We're not trying to force it in there or we're listening for it. We're listening for the unusual thing. Maybe we're framing it or maybe our scene partner frames it. At any rate, we all just end up on the same page at some point. More on this in a second. So whatever you do for all of this exactly, for the unusual thing, seeing it, noticing it, framing it, it can depend on who you're playing with, like your team, or maybe it's the style of the theater or the community. You also might have personal preferences. Like I like starting with something that's a little bit off, like the crayon thing. And then you can make it weirder through heightening, or you can get more specific about those things. Like I wouldn't do something... Like say, I have pickles for toes, but I might be a pickle purveyor that's really into specific flavors or some kind of new pickle cut. So it could be real, perhaps. So noticing the unusual thing, that often comes from practice, from feeling, from getting the gist, from sort of that gut thing. It's less rules and structure and more something else. And that, just sort of the something else essence, is often hard for us neurodivergence, I think. We often like the structure or rule book, and all of this seems like a big rule, but in the end, it's kind of not. It's more just gut reaction. We find an unusual thing because it's often the source of the funny and the core nucleus of what a game is because weird things are funny and funny is game. But you take that nugget and then it just sort of forms the game and that forms the scene. So making sure you and your scene partner agree on what that weird or unusual thing is really early on, that helps you have an easier time throughout the scene on agreeing what that game is and then how you'll play with that thing. So how do we find the unusual thing if it is sort of this gut reaction, this feeling, this thing that we have to notice that doesn't really have a concrete rules book about it? Well, we end up finding that weird or unusual thing with our scene partners. Sometimes Something unusual could be happening. It could be an action, or it might be an item, or it might be a behavior of a character. It can come from wherever, but it does need to be pointed out by someone in the scene to the other people in the scene, and of course, also the audience watching. So that's when and why we end up framing that weird thing. So the framing part is simply communicating with your scene partner and to the audience. Hey, this thing here is, is that's kind of weird. And you might even say why it's weird. Basically, you just want everyone to be on that same page so you can move forward and have fun with it. And I did say the word simply, but it's not really simple, especially in the earlier phases. This is done so many different ways. And as such, it's not simple because we also have to notice it. We have to communicate and communicating can be a challenge. It's not usually 
as heavy handed as, hey, that's weird either. That would make it easy if we always said, hey, that's weird. But that is a little bit heavy handed. And that's something that we might only see when we're say learning, we're doing exercises. But after that, it usually isn't. At its core, though, you react to the unusual thing. You care about that unusual thing. And then you go from there and you make it into a scene. That's all a very simplified version of something that's not all that simple and we often take quite a long time to get better at. So now let's talk a little bit about why the unusual. Why is the weird weird for the weirdos? Oh, that that's a weird title. So things that are normal for neurodivergent people are sometimes weird for neurotypical people and vice versa. Things that are weird for the neurodivergent are sometimes normal for the neurotypical. We're talking about things that become lost in translation and how neurodivergent humans do translation. And that can vary a lot. Like how I personally translate neurotypical, how fast that is, when it applies, it's all going to be different. It's going to be different for me than it is for you. So this is the part where you need to start thinking about or analyzing your own improv practice in this regard. Notice how things work for you or what might not be in place yet. And then when you find that, you can start noticing your own pattern or practice. A little bit more about the communication, why things are weird for us and not weird for neurotypicals and vice versa. So there was a study that was done and this was done with autistic individuals and allistic individuals. And this is autistic people and not autistic people. And this study combined a group of all autistic people together and did the telephone game. That's where one person starts a message and it goes through all the different people and then the last person repeats that message and how close it is to the original message. So they did the study with all autistic, all non-autistic, and then a mixture of autistic and not autistic people. And what they found is in the group of all autistic people, the message was about the same at the end, the group of all not autistic people, message was about the same at the end and the mixed group, the message was different at the end. So a simple demonstration of how communication differs between different neurotypes. So with these communication differences, of course, we're going to start interpreting things in different ways. Things are going to be understood that come out of our mouths in different ways. And this can really affect what we find unusual or not because a lot of the times just the way that I might say something or the way that I might answer a question is seen as unusual when to me it just totally makes sense. And again, that's like the video I mentioned earlier with the husband and the wife. His answer that he gave made sense to him, but then he realized, oh, that is unusual and unexpected to my wife. And that's how some of the communication that we have in scenes may come out, quote unquote, weird or not. And this, of course, extends to experiences and all sorts of different things like my regular activities that I do that are completely normal for me because that's the way that I live my life as a neurodivergent individual I know is going to be unusual to neurotypical people. But we have to get used to sort of recognizing that, recognizing that, well, the majority of the audience is going to see this as unusual. So this is an unusual thing. And sometimes that 
that might take a beat for us to remember because we're in the moment. We're just responding right out of our gut, right out of our head. And we have to do that little blip of transition. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's going to be interpreted as unusual to most people. So it is. And that's okay. But we do have to give ourselves the understanding that it might take us a beat to recognize that in the moment. And that moment, that blip is perfectly fine. So will it always work, though? Not always. It might kind of work in just different ways. For example, I was in a group of monocene and that monocene had a game and I missed some of the subtext because sometimes subtext can be difficult, especially in this sense. And that subtext was the main part of the game in this case, which is why it kind of tripped me up. Oftentimes subtext is not the main part of the game. So I picked up on that game maybe three quarters of the way through of a very long scene. Like I kind of thought we were playing a game and I didn't realize, oh, we're playing that game until about three quarters of the way through. But in rehashing the scene in my head afterwards, because I knew I missed it, like I realized three quarters of the way through, oh, I missed the games. So I was rewinding that game in my head to see what I missed. And I realized I played the subtext game. I heightened the subtext of the game in pretty much exactly the same way as had I got the subtext initially, maybe even better because I wasn't overthinking it either, but it still worked. What I sort of grasped from that experience is that we have a lot of skill that's already kind of built in, especially if we've done masking for a very long time. And I mean, masking, of course, is hard. It takes a lot of effort. It's not a great thing, but it is something that we have experienced for a very long time and that we already naturally apply to a lot of our conversations or experiences. And we sometimes have that masking kind of on autopilot. So it can apply to our scenes and can be kind of useful in that case, perhaps. It's also important to remember it's okay to play these things the way that you are. Because even if you don't get some things, like in this case, the subtext, some of the audience isn't going to either. So if you end up needing to clarify something in character, in scene, this can be a good thing that can be of service both to the scene and to your audience. So in this next section, we're going to look at why does it have to be the first thing or does it have to be the very, very first unusual thing that comes up in a scene? So that is what some teachers will teach. They will say that the first unusual thing is the correct one, that you must take the very first unusual thing that comes up that is perceived by them as unusual. And it's sort of seen as a universal understanding of what's weird. And you might have missed it if they brought it up. And that was the only correct unusual thing for the game to be based off of later in the scene. Now, this isn't a universal rule, even in this game of the scene style improv, but it is a rule that some teachers will teach. That is their philosophy. And now my opinion is that is a valid philosophy like any others. It just doesn't work for me as the type of improviser I am with the neurotype that I have. I have a different philosophy and neither of these are any less good or valid or anything. They're just different and Every philosophy that we come across, this and other ones, will have their own 
pros and cons. Just the con of needing to find the very, very first unusual thing in the scene, that con for my brain, it's too big. It has too many drawbacks. So I use a different one instead. And I do want to point out that neurodivergent people, some of us, myself included, can be rule followers. If I go into a space that has the rule that you must find the very, very first unusual thing in the scene, that is the correct unusual thing for the scene. That is what the teacher wants. My brain will immediately want to only do that thing perfectly. So I must find what they think is the unusual thing. I must get that thing that's in their brain that they noticed as the very first unusual thing that came up at all. And if I don't, I'm a failure. I need to cancel all of my future improv engagements. I must leave the community and go back to farming and never show my face in these parts ever again. That is how my brain works. But that is a bit. Because I did feel that way and I'm still here. So it's a bit. Anyways. As you might notice through that, that doing things that way, finding the very, very first unusual thing that will be perceived by the audience, by someone else, it'll put me in my head. I will be scanning. Is this weird to who? Is a neurotypical person somewhere finding this weird? Will I catch it? Will I see it? And on and on and on. And then I'm not enjoying myself. I'm not flowing. I'm not being a good improviser this way. I'm deeply in my head and I'm too focused to be a good listener. And losing that good listening thing, I think is too big of a con for the benefit of noticing the unusual thing that other people will notice as unusual. And other people is the key word. The alternative is to let go and notice what you find. And that to me what you find, and this might be your scene partner equally, what you all agree on is the best unusual thing. My way is to just loosen up, to listen, make that the focus, and just see what you notice. You might notice it from your scene partner saying something that's slightly unusual to you, or it might be what they're framing as unusual, which might be something they did or you did. And it could be the second or third thing. But all of it is still early in the scene. We're not saying wait for a full minute or something. This is what you and your scene partner both notice as the unusual thing near the beginning of the scene. And that's my philosophy for finding the best unusual thing near the beginning of the scene as opposed to the very, very, very first one. And I know that probably this might be making some of you angry because I'm saying to break a rule someone might have taught you. And for those of you who are angry, I'll have more on this soon. So my mindset, my brain works way better for me not worrying about it being the very first unusual item that anyone would see. But of course, that goes against what some of you have been taught. And this also, as such, might come off as rejecting an offer. But we can also sort of ask the question, was it an offer? Because it might have been too subtle. You might not have noticed it, not because you're not noticing, but because of your neurotype. So what you want to do is just enhance your listening and you will be grabbing a very early offer of an unusual thing. And as such, you will be grabbing a better one. It's the one that you're both interested in if you both agree on it and you both communicate that thing. And I believe that's going to work better for the improvisers. And in the end, it could very well be 
working better for the scene. And it just takes that stress off the top of the scene. You aren't as worried about something that is difficult potentially for you to notice or see or hear. You just know that it is going to happen early on. I listen better without the pressure of finding that very, very first thing that if my scene partner sees and frames something, I'll hopefully just get to that immediately anyways. I'm way more focused on my scene partner as opposed to just scanning for those unusual things. I'm being natural and I'm just using my natural neurotype in this process as opposed to trying to do the translation into neurotypical. Adding that neurotypical neurodivergent translation process takes a lot of cycles on its own, and I believe it's too many cycles for improv. And once I did that, I got a lot more bandwidth in my brain anyway, so I could just be in the scene. And now I just barely notice any of it, I guess. It just sort of happens that much more efficiently now. So I think the key here is to just focus on being with your scene partner more. You're listening, you're communicating, and I believe that that leads to the best thing being picked up as the unusual that leads to the game, being on that same page is leading to a better scene. And that ultimately might be just as fast in the end. Maybe it even lends itself to finding something with your scene partners better and faster. If you end up because you're so efficient noticing the very first thing, great, good on you. But if it's the second thing that you both agree on that came up and you both saw it's weird, maybe that's the better game anyways. So the one thing that you don't want to do in this process is force something weird in. Us neurodivergents, we are pretty good at being weird. By definition, we're divergent, but we don't want to force something into the scene. This isn't good and it won't be funny. And I'm using very definitive language there. And if that's controversial, so be it, because I'll stand behind that one. You don't want to force stuff in. You want to just be yourself. And if that happens to be weird, that is fine. You'll sometimes be accused of forcing it because... Sometimes neurotypical people just don't get us. But make sure that you know you aren't actually forcing something in. Like truly ask yourself, don't lie to yourself, or just make a mental note of what they said in the note and see if you might want to adjust some of that. At any rate, be your honest weird self and you'll sometimes be framed as the weird one, and that's okay, because it's not forced. And I know that some of the notes might be a little bit difficult, like I was just explaining about how sometimes we get framed as the weird one, or somebody will pick up on something that is particularly weird, but it did come from an honest place. It might have really happened. Don't let that stuff get too much in your head, because it is, at the end of the day, a really nice experience to just let go and be ourselves. And we do know that we're neurodivergent. We do know what we are. And I'm perfectly happy with that. And I think that that sort of learning process can be a neat one to sort of get through improv. And if you choose to adjust, great. But I think the main focus here is just being you and seeing what happens 
from that place. And it can be very rewarding in the end. So in this next section, I'll give some improv tips for the neurodivergence out there. First of all, know that this is going to be very different for all of us. So take any of these tips and advice as usual on an as needed basis. I'm a very high masking autistic ADHD individual. So my experience is going to be different from yours probably in that I can read weird. I can naturally do weird. I can kind of mask as neurotypical. It affects how I communicate my prior experiences in corporate life, etc. will have adjusted what I know in communication, all of this kind of thing. So standard disclaimer for every episode. One thing that really helped me a lot in sort of understanding what was unusual, how it happened, how it was grasped in the scene, was watching a ton of experienced improvisers doing this in online live streams from the cities. This was the best advice I was given, and I think it's some of the best advice I can share for a lot of improv things. I figure that watching these live streams of experienced improvisers is just just as important as classes and reps to explain some of this stuff and make it make sense. It can be time consuming and expensive for many of the live streams, but I do find it extremely helpful. So if you can access them, I do recommend those live streams. When you do want to connect with your scene partners at the top of the scene to do the listening, to listen hard, to connect with them, do this in whatever way makes the most sense for you to connect. This could be through eye contact. It might not be. That might not be something that you can access and that's okay. Play around and find the best ways to listen hard at the top of the scene and find which ways work best for you. At the top of the scene, don't be afraid to explore that base reality a little bit, to set it up clearly and make that make sense for you because that firm foundation of knowing who your character is and where you are, all that sort of thing is really going to help you find that unusual thing quickly. And someone will frame the unusual. It might be you, but it might be one of your scene partners. Make sure you're just scanning for that unusual thing or scanning for the framing. You can also rely on the framing. If you have difficulty picking out the unusual thing because maybe that just it doesn't make sense to you. Watch for the framing because somebody will do that framing. So maybe watching for the framing is a little bit easier than watching for the unusual and you can focus on that until you get more comfortable in general. And if you're framing something and maybe your scene partner doesn't pick up on that, like maybe it's not something that's weird to them, but it is weird to you, find different ways to frame or you can just literally say, that's weird or whatever. You might need to use that hard hand at times, especially if you're playing with people you don't know that well yet. So that harder hand is okay, especially in those cases and in general. Even if you are very experienced playing with very experienced people, there are times when that hard hand of that's weird is perfectly acceptable. So don't be afraid to use that when you need to. With time and reps, hopefully end up getting this all done faster and better and really efficient and funnier and Go you, that's great. But remember that that exploration, like I was just talking about, is valid. It's especially good for setting the solid foundation of a scene or a set. So it's not a bad thing if things move a little bit slower, because ultimately it might make for a better scene in the end. 
And that solid foundation can help with other things like setting up stronger characters or giving you the better foundation for secondary games that you can flip between. So don't be afraid to explore a little bit. So what if you have issues in this area? Well, one of the things that you can do is to ask for a set way to point out the unusual and frame it. This might be in a learning context, it might be in a class, or you might be coached, etc. Or you might be just working with a team practicing this particular thing so you can all communicate better. You might ask for a specific type of reaction. This can be physical, it could be verbal, like, wow, that's weird. It doesn't matter. This is just to learn. So whatever works best for you, whatever you notice best, see if you can set up a very specific reaction that's used to frame the unusual. And that can make it a little bit easier to start noticing unusual things in general before they're framed. So you can frame them eventually. If something doesn't make sense why it's weird, discuss this afterwards. Ask your teacher or your coach or even your scene partner, why did you find that weird? I just didn't understand myself. And this isn't a commentary on your scene partner or you. It's just a communication thing that exists. Don't be afraid to have some of those discussions afterwards about what made that weird or how do I notice that thing. This all comes down to the framing because sometimes I'm going to find a thing that my scene partner doesn't find weird but I'm going to frame it as such to get everyone on the same page and we don't have to agree that it's weird. We just have to move on from that place. It is agreeing that it's weird for the scene, but you don't have to agree that it's a weird thing in real life. You're just using it for the make-em-ups. So you can do a lot of this without really understanding why something is unusual. You might never understand what makes those things unusual, but you can focus on the framing part first. Watching for that because it's a lot easier to do, especially if you get some help in this area. Get good at the framing first and then focus a little bit more on noticing the unusual thing. And you can even take something pretty mundane that might not be unusual, but frame it as such. So a lot can get lost in translation between neurotypical and neurodivergent improvisers. And sorting out what is unusual in a scene can be a source of difficulty for all of us, regardless of neurotype. But it can be especially hard or a little bit harder when we have different cognitive wiring to start off with. And that's just because we communicate differently. We can work on this communication, though, and that's going to be using techniques like framing the unusual thing and listening in more efficient ways to get there and hopefully not worrying about it being the very, very first unusual thing that other people find unusual. It's really useful to work with trusted improvisers that you know, say in a practice group, to try some exercises to get used to recognizing patterns or how people frame in order to get used to noticing the unusual thing. It's also a great practice to watch really seasoned improvisers say on those live streams to see how it's done by those with a lot of experience. See if you can maybe pick out some of the unusual things before they're heightened. See if you can see the improvisers noticing it or framing it in that top of the scene. See if maybe you can notice some of the subtle reactions as well. What do they look like? Get good at predicting 
moves. Watching improv like that, it's kind of a class on its own. And also, don't force it in there. Just don't worry about it being that very first thing. You want to find it early and fairly quick, but if you don't sync up on the very, very first thing, personally, I don't stress about that. What you find with your scene partner might be the better unusual thing anyways, because you both saw it, you both agreed on it naturally. So listen hard, sync up, get used to communicating with your scene partners and getting on that same page with them by what you both find unusual. All right, that's it for this week. Let's close this episode out. I have classes at wgimprovschool.com. I have a lab coming up and the lab is a series of classes where we're going to learn a brand new form and we're going to output it on the internet in a new way uh, using a newer type of streaming technology that's not Zoom. And it's also going to be output to a podcast on our We Just Podcast channel. So go look at the site WG improvschool.com. It's under the online classes page. I also have a site of my own at flatimprov.com. I have a lot of information on there about online classes and jams and podcasts and so on. And I have a newsletter that comes out a couple times per month about what's going on in the community. So check that out. And also on that same website, I have a page for this podcast and you can send me messages or if you have a comment about something that I've said that you'd like me to read out from you, I can do that too. So that's at flatimprov.com slash substack if you'd like to send me a message. And also, I told you in this episode to go watch some good live streams. So I will note that I do mention some of those in my newsletter. So if you're wondering, where do I go? Subscribe to the newsletter and it will have links in it. All right. So here's an aside for the weirds. And I use that term with respect and love. It's what I call myself. All right. So I recently saw a video about how accommodating and self-accommodating is good, but forcing disabled people to do things and be uncomfortable is bad. Like telling a neurodivergent person to just do this is not great. So I want to make it clear that I'm not here to say to force yourself to do something. I'm basically about accommodating yourself in improv, doing you and communicating and understanding as much as possible. Like we kind of have to be able to communicate because this is a team thing. It's a group thing. It's a learning situation. So to be part of it all, we do have to communicate in some ways. And communication's always weird. There's always things getting lost in translation. Speaking up is hard, but in some cases we might need to, right? And uh, there's many ways to do all of that. And that's what we're focused on here in the series. And maybe these are workarounds, but I think just being aware on both sides neurotypical and neurodivergent is a good first step. And if anything happens from this series, I hope that it's that, that people are aware that these differences exist, that these differences in communication exist. And that also we learn that we're not alone, that there's others out there like us dealing with exactly these things. So communicating as neurodivergents can 
be a challenge. And according to some of those studies, we might communicate more effectively with each other, like the telephone study that I mentioned earlier. But none of this is easy. Even two neurodivergent people communicating can be difficult as well. So just remember that you don't have to do anything that you don't want to do, especially in improv. This is a very voluntary activity for, I think, all of us. So self-accommodate, be proactive, and do what you need to do for improv, and most importantly, yourself. Use these if they're useful to you, and throw away everything that is not. Do not force yourself to do anything. And I think that's all I have. Thanks for listening. 